gonemobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Telerik UI for Xamarin is a collection of more than 70 Xamarin forms and Xamarin wrappers. A theming mechanism with a built-in predefined theme, predefined Visual Studio item templates, MVVM support, and more. The toolset offers fast loading, excellent drawing capabilities, pixel perfection, and stunning UI, all while providing flexible customization. One C-sharp project, three native mobile apps. Release your inner .NET ninja and create awesome cross-platform mobile apps with Telerik UI for Xamarin. For more information or to download a trial, visit Telerik.com slash Xamarin dash Gone Mobile. Welcome back to another episode of Gone Mobile. Uh, we we accidentally hit a, a little bit of a, a lapse between episodes after kind of going crazy with with one a week uh, for a while. But but how you been, John? It's been it's been busy. You know, we we keep kind of coming back and thinking, oh, now we've got this this whole uh, schedule thing licked, and uh, then some life event happens, like you know, buying a house and and moving. Um, so this time it was my turn, and uh, it not not the same distance, you know, that you moved out. I didn't go coast to coast. I went about ten uh, kilometers, and however many miles that is for you Americans, down the road. But um, you know, it's been uh, been a lot of work and a lot of fun. But uh, the other thing I'm struggling with is internet, and we're we're doing this. We usually have video going in the background so we can kind of see each other, and unfortunately, I've got we've got nothing going of the sort today. So uh, it's been painful. Yeah, well, I'm glad the the move is other than the internet issues, uh, you know, having gone well, and it, it's good to get connected. We've got a bunch of episodes kind of coming down the pipe too, so uh, it's exciting to to get back into this. And also, I, I realize that I think this is the first episode in a long time where we're bringing back a, a repeat guest. You know, there were there were some kind of early on, but I think it's been a while since we've had, you know, uh, you know, an alumni kind of come back on the show. So. Uh, and this one's going to be a little different too, but I'm I'm really excited to to welcome Matthew Robbins back to the show. How's it going, Matthew? I'm good, Gary. How are you doing? Great, great. So, um, so we we had you on. I was just looking it up on our side too. So it was January of 2017. So almost, I guess, technically almost two years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, so, so in that episode, we talked about uh, your product M Fractor and a lot of what it allows you to do. Um, and I guess before we get into the the real meat of of today's episode, I, for anyone who's not familiar with with M Fractor or or uh, you know who hasn't heard the the advertising, and thank you for for sponsoring this show very often as well. Um, what what is M Fractor? So M Fractor, in a nutshell, is a set of productivity tools for Visual Studio for Mac. Um, our focus is primarily on Xamarin Forms, so we expand out the Xamarin IntelliSense and we add in a whole bunch of inline code actions, and we patch up some things that we think could have been done better. Uh, we have a whole bunch of, of different code actions. We have an image tooling. We have localization tooling. Uh, we're starting to do quite a few C-sharp code actions. Um, just a lot, a lot of small paper cuts that we're slowly fixing that just make the general development experience of Visual Studio for Mac uh, a whole lot nicer. So is this something that you're doing full-time now, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm very, very lucky that by commercializing it early last year, um, that over time we've grown to a point where I can support myself off, off it. So I'm, I'm doing a little bit of freelancing, and that's mostly to drive the ideas for the product. And so, you know, what were you doing before you started this? I mean, were you have you been working on developer tooling type things before? Or was this something new for you? Like, what what made you or what did you switch over from doing? 
Uh, well, I've been working with Xamarin since 2012, so way, way, way back in the days of like manual file linking and you know editing MS Build and uh, you know back in the dark ages for Xamarin essentially. Uh, and I've been involved like in the app for just such a long time that eventually in 2015. Uh, there's some problems with the tooling and there's always, you know, there's always going to be problems with the tooling. Uh, so I decided to basically do something about it. Uh, and yeah, over the years, it's just kind of grown and grown and grown into a point where it became a product that very, very, very luckily, uh, people have had interest in buying. So it's just, it's just kind of happened, but it happened with intent as well. (laughs) That's always a nice kind of combination of things. Like, uh, you know, so, you know, obviously this came out of, you know, needing to scratch your own itch and, and smooth over some of the, the rough edges in, in what you were working on. I, I'm curious, like, had you, had you ever worked on any sort of developer tooling before or, you know, whether it be also inside of uh, Visual Studio for Mac or Monodevelop or, or anything else? Or is this kind of your first foray into to that kind of uh, development? No, I'd never touched it. So historically, like when I started off in, in software development, I studied com- uh, how to make computer games. So I learned how to you know how to do computer graphics write ai and, and all that kind of stuff so my original background is such a far cry from what i've ended up doing professionally <laughs> um yeah so i just kind of i just kind of did it and i guess this is you know the thing of being an entrepreneur and i guess essentially i'm an entrepreneur now um is that you just do things and they yeah and you just i don't know I don't know. I just I don't didn't think about it too much. I'm like, this is something that I need to do, and other people probably want. So screw it. I'm just going to do it. And, and what was your experience to you know take Visual Studio for Mac or you know which used to be Xamarin Studio, which used to be Mono Develop, uh, and you know figure out how to actually get started in in writing custom tooling and custom add-ins for it. Yeah, it's been a real experience. I mean, three three four years on, it's great now because I. Like I essentially own own the product internally, um, but starting out, uh, I don't know who, if you've written Monodevelop or Visual Studio for Mac extensions, uh, but the documentation is light. Um, <laughs> and, I think and, that's a, a little bit of an understatement. Yeah. Uh, so the documentation is the source code on GitHub, more or less. Uh, there is articles and stuff online, and you know some of the the, the Xamarin. Well, so I'm almost called it Xamarin Studio. Some of the Visual, Visual Studio for Mac product team, uh, they do actively, you know, try to document it. But God, it's such a big beast with so many components that the best way to learn how to do it is to get really good at searching on GitHub. Yeah, I know in the the little ones that that I've developed, and definitely nothing to the extent that that Mfractor's doing. But I basically just had to spelunk through the the GitHub repositories and kind of reverse engineer my way there, mixed with kind of bugging Michaela and asking for uh, asking for support, which which yeah. also worked well in in some occasions. Yeah, I love the vi- like the visualization there of you spelunking through through GitHub. I'm picturing like a caving a caving suit and a headlamp. <laughs> Yeah, I know that's effectively my life. <laughs> yeah. You don't dress like that every day. Oh well, I'm wearing it. I'm wearing my mining suit right now. <laughs> I would expect no less. So, yeah. so going back to, to kind of the the impetus for for starting the the project, then um, you know, once you you kind of decided to do this, like, how did you did, did you have to jump through any hoops or do anything to kind of separate it from the work you were doing, whether it was like consulting work or working for another company? Like, how did you? 
How did you keep the the M Fractor stuff that you were building actually yours instead of whoever whatever project you were working on? Uh, I made it. I, I would talk to my managers about what I was doing. Uh, made sure that they that it was all kind of out in the open. Um, so my first employer that I was involved in, which was a company called Touchstar, so they do oil and gas and air, aircraft refueling. It's a, it's a totally different domain, so it didn't really matter for them. Um, but I was using them to get product feedback as well. So I was always very you know open about what I was doing. And I've been lucky enough to be involved in businesses that have been extremely supportive of it. Um, like so much so that one of one of my former CEOs offered to inv- to invest at some point, but at that point we didn't need the money, and it didn't really offer like offer anything. Um, yeah, like basically, just uh, I've always been open about what I, what I've done with my employees. So, I mean, you kind of made it sound like this is something that you just kind of grew into building as a business. Um, you know, is that the case or, or did you kind of know that you wanted to turn it into a business from the beginning? Or, you know, at what point did you realize that, hey, like this is something that I'm going to do as a, as a business and, and create, you know, an actual product around this? Pretty much from the first line of code. And that's, that's why Infractor was never open source. So when I when I started writing out my initial ideas and the initial kind of plan of what I was going to do, because I had, you know, like fifty to hundred different ideas, um, I you know I loosely wrote down how how I wanted to like some of the strategies that I would take to to get it so that people would use it, um, and also you know the fact that I did want to make money from this one day. So it took two years before we could make money from it. Um, so I think that's the thing with products is they take a lot of time investment before you see a return. Um, but yeah, and, it was always know, intended for business. And from from that original concept of making it a business, I mean, did you do any you know initial kind of like market research, if you want to call it that, at that point to see you know if there was actually people out there that were willing and and, and interested in paying for this as a product? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I, I basically, what, what I figured is that if ReSharper can live on windows and do well, and it, the, like, and I, I could see the trajectory that Xamarin was going at that point. Cause I'd been involved in the industry for like four or five years. So it just, there just seemed to be a, a, a very obvious market gap there. Yeah, I mean, they've definitely proven that there's a, there's a market there, and I guess it just it remained to be seen what what there was on the the Mac side of things, I guess, right? Yeah, and I mean, I, I was very fortunate that a few things happened along the way because 2015, this is pre Microsoft acquisition, so I was banking on the fact that I could, you know, live inside the Xamarin ecosystem, like just as like as Xamarin being the company itself. Um. But then Microsoft acquired Xamarin, which was like, I was a year into the project by then, and I was like, holy crap, that's an amazing thing to happen. Because um, it, it basically like gives them a whole bunch of legitimacy, legitimacy for their tech. Because prior to that, Xamarin was just a startup, essentially. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going on a tangent. Um, and then also... 
I think it was probably like eight months after the Microsoft acquisition, they rebranded Xamarin Studio to Visual Studio for Mac. And that was a really, really, really powerful thing because by giving Xamarin Studio the Visual Studio brand name, it, it gave it a whole bunch of le- whole bunch of legit- legitimacy. So it meant that I was operating then alongside the Visual Studio for Mac brand, which is, yeah, it was, it was a good turn of events. Did you see like a, a noticeable bump in either new users coming in or people being more willing to to pay for these products like after the the Microsoft acquisition once you had the sort of Microsoft world the developers you know come into that ecosystem? At the time I was too small and to observe any of this so it took me ages to get any kind of traction. Um, so not really. Uh, I'd imagine if I was a larger extension at that point then maybe. That's fair. So, so I'd be curious to talk about pricing here a little bit, which is always kind of uh, an interesting topic for, uh, you know, developer tools in general, or, or really just, you know, any software in general. Um, and you mentioned that it took you, uh, I think you said a couple of years before you started to really turn any, any profit from this. So I'd be curious to hear what you could, what you're willing to talk about around, like, how did you determine what, you know, what went into how you determined how, how much you wanted to, to charge for this product and, you know, free versus freemium or like any of, the, any of that sort of thing? Yeah. So the price point essentially came uh, from a discussion I had with a potential investor at the end of what 2016. So when, when the Visual Studio for Mac branding happened, it, like a light bulb went off in my head and I was like, holy crap, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, so I, I approached someone who I knew who just exited his business for an un- ungodly amount of money. Um, and him and he, he was kind of interested in investing, but before we did that, we built a financial model of what we were, of what the business would look like in maybe like three to five years. So we, we would map out expenses, mapped out, you know, what salaries would be, um, taxes and then kind of based on that you ha- you derive what the profit would have to be and then figured out what the market size would be uh, and then for, you know the poten- the percentage of people who would be willing to pay for it uh, and then kind of from that you get a price point so we went yeah you know expenses market size and then who's willing to pay in the market and then from that figured out basically a price point that was fair. And how did that end up working out in your estimation, kind of looking back on wherever you landed initially? Um, was it a difficult sell for, for users? Did, did people generally buy on, buy on board or did it indicate that you weren't charging enough or did you get a lot of pushback? Like, like how did that kind of play the biggest out? Thing, the biggest thing that we see is quite a bit of uh, pushback. And it's, I can understand where it's coming from, but it, $300 is the price point that we have to charge to make you know to make a living essentially um, and the pushback that we get is from countries like Brazil Argentina um, Eastern Europe India so any any Western country the price point works completely fine um, like United States Australia New Zealand UK any European country people will understand that for Essentially, a dollar a day. If you if you save five minutes, you've you've made your money back. So, those countries have have high enough salary to afford the product. Um, 
but yeah, we're, we're like always like constantly tweaking and figuring out uh, what we can do to service that other half of the market as well. Yeah, one of the other reasons why I was curious too, especially given the market that you entered, is you know one of the you know right up until the Microsoft acquisition when you know it it completely changed the pricing model on the Xamarin side. One of the most frequent grenades lobbed at Xamarin from a lot of users was just how expensive it was. So I was definitely curious to hear if you saw that play out in terms of what what developers were willing to pay on top of those sorts of prices. Um, you know, for extra developer tooling, you know, versus maybe after the acquisition when that that really changed the price point for a lot of users. Yeah, developers are like they're a funny bunch to sell to, because the like the open source space in some ways, like it, it's fan, it's a fantastic movement. Um, you know, to be able to get those kind of products and because essentially a lot of open source software, you know like the, the packages and stuff we use, they are products, they're just unpaid products. So how do, how do I phrase this? Um, it, it's kind of poisoned the market in some ways because our expectation is that everything's free. But the amount of effort and man hours that have to go into making these things, uh, they're huge. Like Infract is in the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours. And the reality is that, you know, uh, you, you can't expect someone to work for free. Uh, no, actually, you shouldn't expect someone to work for free. So, y- yeah, you just have to charge for this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody wants everything for free. And, and I think there's always some level of users who uh, who will definitely kind of cry when they have to pay for something. But um you know, definitely, it's, it sounds like you've you've seen that you know enough users uh, are interested in paying for a product. And I mean, one of the things I was thinking about as you're talking about this is uh, just like the writer ID itself, where it's a it's not quite the same thing because it's a full blown uh, ID and editor, and maybe it does some of the things and and not a lot of the things that your edition does. But you know, does does any competition like that kind of come into how you figure out pricing, or has that driven any of your decisions? Uh, it probably should more than it does. I I tend not to think about a, like the competition a whole lot, um, just because I find it distracting, and it, it doesn't really. I guess that like that thinking about it doesn't really add any po- like positive uh, movement to the product. I'd rather just solve the problems at hand than kind of worry about what other people are doing because we've got. You know what our customers want. I know what they want. I'd rather just solve that than get hung up on what other people are doing. And not to to belabor the the pricing conversation too much, um, but but one other thing that I, I think is is interesting to talk through, especially for folks who might be listening who are trying to figure out, you know, uh, you know, a business model for software and that sort of thing. Um, out of curiosity, do, does Mfractor have a, a free model versus a paid model, or is it just a, a paid model right now? So we have a free model as well, and that's taken a lot of tweaking to arrive to the point that of where it is. Um, so our, our free model is two XAML documents per day. Is it basically just to give folks a, enough of a taste of it to know that they should pay for it, but not enough to do much real work in it? Yeah, and we figured that it's probably enough for, say, students and whatnot, so people who can't or, or don't want to pay for it, they can at least operate and, and use some of the tools in the product. Um, and then... There's probably a year to two years of, of tweaking and testing that's gone into that particular model. 
Yeah, I'd be curious to to hear anything that you can, uh, any light you can shed on how you've sort of tweaked that over the years. Like I know in talking with a lot of other other software vendors that are out there, the the story that that I hear probably more often than anything else is, you know, when you have a free model versus a paid model, that you know, night maybe 80, 90% of your support requests and support burden come from that free model versus the people that are actually, you know, paying for your product and you know, helping sustain that free model. Like, did you see anything kind of similar to that? I think I'm quite lucky in that a lot of the bugs and issues and feedback that I get are from paid users or from uh, MVPs. Um, yeah, I was going to go somewhere on that and I lost my train of thought. Well, you know, let's let's switch gears a little bit from the pricing conversation. Um, you know, given that you this is kind of a, a new thing for you running this, uh, building a developer tool and, and running it as a business. Um, you know, has there anything been anything that really surprised you uh, in terms of like running the business behind this uh, and and with users and and things that you wouldn't have expected that you'd have to decide and get into. Uh I mean, like, it's constantly surprising. and I think that's why I like it is that it's 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 very very challenging. Um, yeah, like having to move, like, step away from a source code, and I was surprised at how much I like the the business side of the business rather than the coding side of the business. So I like I absolutely love interacting with customers. I think that's one of the the best things, like, in a business. So it's not just about writing code for me anymore. It's, you know, like having having banter with customers. So, you know, just talking to them about whatever that that, that we end up talking about. And often it's not about the product. Um, yeah, just having a good time while making it is like one of the things that like has surprised me from, from doing this for so long. So, yeah, you kind of like learn all these other other business skills along the way. And you end up enjoying that stuff a lot more than you do than you do the code. Is the the business in general? Is that still just you, or do you have anyone else kind of working full time or part time on this with you? Like, how do you how do you split your time and and make sure that you know the product keeps evolving while you're still able to have you know enough conversations with um, you know with customers and and developers and that sort of thing. Um. Yeah, so I have a, a co-founder on board who's slowly working away on on the Windows version. So yeah, we are doing that. It's just it's just taking a bit of time. Um, he also manages the, our our licensing server. Uh, but in terms of you know kind of like time management, the, I, I find that the thing with with business, or at least my interpretation of it, is that you just keep on building process so that you can do things without really thinking. Or, or that you can hand things off to other people and they don't have to do all the hard work of figuring out, you know, how to do it. So it, it kind of doesn't take that much time anymore to do a lot of things because, like, we've set up so much stuff, like, with documentation and our website and how our, how our sales system works, how our marketing works, uh, is that it, it takes a lot less time to do things than you would expect. So, yeah, we've we've like I think the like a couple of years into a business, you reach a maturity where things like kind of tick along, and I expect that at some point we'll have a, like another growth phase where you know, all of this will get undone and we'll have to do a whole whole bunch of hard work. But for the moment, we're kind of yeah, we're in a nice place. 
That's good. It's definitely one of those moments to, to savor while you can, right? Um, I, and you mentioned in passing there, uh, you know, the sales and marketing and that whole side of things that I think a lot of developers generally, you know, until you have a business that you're supporting or, or working in some of those functions in a company, you know, don't generally have to, to think about. Was, was that all new to you as you needed to get into to sales and marketing for, you know, expanding the reach of your product? Yeah, totally new to me. And you know what? That's that like the sales aspect in particular is something that I'm still quite weak at. And then we could do a lot better. Um, but I was really, really lucky, right? So when I was in the process of commercializing in Frank, I was working for a startup called JobAdder. Well, not a startup. I guess you would phrase them as like a high growth business. So we're we're about thirty five people at the point that I started, and eighty when I left two years later. So they like they they boomed while I was there. Um, but basically, being part of a business like that, the way that I viewed it is that it's like being in a startup accelerator or or an incubator. So we had a lot of very very exceptionally talented people in sales and marketing. Um, the CEO, you know, that was his second or third business, and he. Like he kind of knew the ins and outs and and, and the pitfalls of, of it as well. So for me, I was in an environment uh, as Mfractor was growing that I could get like a really good feedback loop and had had great sounding boards uh, within JobAdder itself. So that's how I ended up developing those skills, um, and also like as a developer, I would have phrased myself more as a developer a couple of years ago. You just have to take it. Have to take a deep breath and do it. Like it's a little bit scary, but yeah, you just have to figure it out because that's kind of what what it's all about. So I think this is you know it's a really inspiring story, and I think it's it's something that a lot of uh, developers and I'm sure a lot of our listeners can kind of relate to in the sense that you know it's kind of the dream to be able to build your own product and and start creating something that then becomes your main. Uh, you know, source of of income and and source of success, and and I'm curious, and you know, depending how comfortable you're you're sharing with you're, you are to share with us, but like, is this something that you know you'd consider that uh, you're you're now at the point where you're you're able to live very comfortably, and you've kind of achieved a level of success with the business that um, you know you're you're not kind of in that startup mode where you're just trying to kind of make it happen. I think we're like I'm still in the startup mode where I'm just trying to make it happen. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty hungry to be honest, and we're not. I I feel like no matter how well we do, I'll always want to do do better. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I actually you know sit back, take a breath, and look objectively at what we've done, we're not making amazing money, but we're making you know good money, and. It means that I've got a lifestyle now that's very, very, very privileged. So I'm currently digital nomading, so I can kind of just go and work and travel wherever I want. And it's, yeah, for me, that's the big reward out of all this. It's not so much the money that we're making. It's the fact that I've been able to generate a lifestyle to do whatever I want to do and, yeah, be free. I think that's the big thing that I I really, really like from this whole thing. And I have to imagine being able to do that sort of lifestyle and also just slash enjoying that sort of lifestyle has to, I would think, would have to help in being able to get out there and meet with a lot of different developers and different walks of life and 
you know, figure out how to build a product that that can serve a much wider audience than you might have otherwise encountered. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's good fun. I mean, I'm getting a bit over working on a laptop and you know, on beaches and stuff. It's hard. <laughs> oh, it sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, kind of circling back to 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 trying to. Um, you know, kind of paint the picture of what it's like to to actually do this and, you know, go from a developer who might not have thought about all that stuff of sales and marketing and all that, that, that other side of things, that's not just writing codes and build or writing code and, and building the product itself. Um, has there been anything else that's kind of surprised you or, or just that you really didn't expect um, in running an actual business that, that would be worthwhile for, for folks to kind of keep in mind if they were going into this fresh? Uh, being on top of cash flow and business reporting and everything. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. It's made me appreciate all the skills that other people in the business have and do. So like I, I'm I'm highly considering doing an MBA just to because I realize how little I know about all the business process side of things. It's yeah, it's it's very very humbling. The whole this whole like whole experience is very humbling. It strips you of a lot of ego. I, I feel like, <laughs> and I think that's probably generally what happens when you just step into worlds that you might have taken for granted or not known anything about, right? Yeah, I I very my very very much appreciate salespeople, you know, marketing staff, people who can do the business admin. That's um, yeah, that that it's a real skill. Yeah, and and one other thing that you mentioned too, um, and and I had the same thought process when I was thinking about you know coming into this episode was, um, you know, developers are are definitely an opinionated folk, right? Like all of us are are very opinionated about you know what the product should do and how everything should work, and um, I mean I can only imagine building what it's like to build tools for that sort of develop that sort of mindset where I would imagine. On one hand, it might be really useful because you'll get really strong ideas or real experience. But on the other hand, it might, you know, it's really strong opinions that might clash with some things. Like, have you, I'd be curious to hear your experience around that side of things and, and how it's been to, to engage with, with developers and, and build a community and get the right kind of feedback and all that. Like, has that been tricky at all? Yeah, it's, it's been like trickier, I think, initially. Um, I think all groups of people have their own personality quirks. Like, so this, this is a small tangent, but I know when I started to do some product management for Job Adder, uh, there was you could definitely see some like particular personality traits and uh, you know ways of thinking in the recruiting industry as well. So, I, I yeah, I think that all, like all groups of people have their own particular challenges, like challenging personality aspects. And I'm curious, you know, you you've talked a lot about. Um how you know what your users want and, you know, getting it, liking, enjoying getting out there and, and talking with them and everything. Like what, what particular avenues are you, are you using to um, build out that community engagement and, and get the feedback and figure out what you, your users want next? Uh, so there's a couple of people that I talk to quite often, probably a couple, like maybe a couple of times a week. Uh, I am, constantly watching slack and twitter twitter for me is a big one you know it's it's a good way to get a good idea of what people want if i meet meet someone in person i'll usually kind of probe them about some ideas 
Uh, what else do I do? If I get some feedback from, like if I get a bug report or some product feedback from someone in an email, I'll usually send them a follow-up and ask them what they like and dislike about the tool, things that they want improved and whatnot. They're kind of the ways that I figure out what to build. Um, because I'm a, you know, I'm a mobile app developer myself, a lot of the ideas stem from my own problems. And, you know, if I give out, if I send out 10 ideas or 10 tools that I've built for, for myself, and that's where a lot of this originates, um, often two or three of them intersect with a lot with problems that a lot of other people have as well. Yeah. And I don't know how often you, you do this sort of thing too, but I know that I, I can't remember at this point, it's been a blur, whether it was earlier this year, or late last year, I think it might've been the latter where you, you came by, you know, our New York city offices for, for Olo and met with our mobile team. And, um, I know for, at least for, for our team, it was, they felt it was a really useful session and, you know, just kind of talking through our processes, things that, you know, would be useful for, for us. Um, so I'd have to imagine that that's sort of a, a decent model for this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of like on-site customer interviews are amazing. They can be tricky to get that amount of time with people though. Yes. <laughs> Even internally, it's tough to get all those people in the same room. Yep. Um, so to kind of, to, to kind of wrap things up a, a, a little bit, um, you know, are there are there any suggestions that you can think of you know, outside of some of the stuff that you know, that we've kind of dug into already about you know you know for anyone who's looking to to maybe go down this path or or even just dip a toe in the water and, and see if this sort of path is uh, you know the right thing for them is there is there anything else that that you would advise anyone getting started there? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that that like that I'd suggest. So, firstly, just do it. Like, don't. Don't think, don't think too much about it. Um, like actually build it. And if you're going to build it, don't sit on it, ship it and get it into the, into the hands of customers. Cause that's like, if you're building it for someone, you want it, you want people using it. Um, and it also means that you've got a, like a good feedback loop. Um, and it gets the problems in your head out of your own head. Um, and also don't open source it. <laughs> Because you'll you'll burn yourself. I think that sounds like some uh, sound advice. Uh, and one last thing before we we take off here, you know, I'm curious if you can share with us any anything that's new with Mfractor, anything that's coming out that you're working on that you're excited about. You know, what's next? So the next things that we're doing uh, is a whole bunch of small image tooling tooling tweaks. Uh, so I started getting some feedback on this a couple of weeks ago, maybe like two months ago. Uh, we're adding the ability to delete an image resource across the whole project. So you can, you know, right click on, you know, drawable slash whatever the PNG and it will delete from all the other resource fo folders and also the iOS project as well, if you'd like. Um, we've just made some changes to the image wizard so that it, it prompts you again, if you want to import another image, uh, just to speed up the whole process, uh, an application icon wizard an image asset browser. So that's really the next thing that we're focusing on is getting that image experience a bit nicer. Awesome. Well, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a lot of new features. Um, and it was, it was definitely really awesome to, to have you back on the show. And I'm, I'm sure it won't be the, the last time that we do it, but um, really, I, one of the other things I just really like about being able to do episodes like this is it's just kind of tell that other side of the the story of, 
of all this, you know, getting a little bit outside of the, the technical aspects and the developer specific aspects and just, you know, talk about a real experience building out a building out a business and sustaining it and, and growing it. So so I really appreciate you coming on, uh, especially at what, six in the morning, your local time to, to chat through all this and share it. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I'm really happy that I can share this stuff with people because it it doesn't get talked talked about enough, at least not in developer circles. I definitely agree. So I'm excited that we were able to be uh, an avenue for it. Um, and it, w- it was great to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile.